Good morning. Um, at this time, the children and youth are dismissed to classes. And you guys are all quiet. I wish you guys were excited to see me like that. It's like, come on. It's like, what is happening back there, Pastor Patty? Sheesh. <laughs> I don't know what you said, but I believe you. Um, so this week we're continuing our, our series in the book of Luke, um, talking about good news for the lost. And the focus this morning is actually on witnesses, good news for the witnesses. So good morning. God bless you all. Thank you all for being here. If you're listening or watching online, we welcome you as well. Um, starting off a little bit different this morning, I didn't know how to not put this in the sermon, um, but the last maybe week, week and a half, I found my thoughts um, dominated by death, um, just dominated by this idea of the end, you know? Um, and it hasn't really been morbid, which is a weird thing to say about death, um, but when you have funerals seemingly every other day, um, and you're visiting hospitals and you're going to cemeteries, it's hard not to think about death, right? And I think one of the things that we, the living, don't think enough about is death. And the fact that most of us, maybe even none of us in this room, will get out of this thing alive, right? And unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to walk through this scene of death. And so how has it not been morbid or fearful um, my prayer has been that I, if God's weighing this on me and our community is feeling it, I mean, if you listen to the, the names that Pastor Lynn just read of all the people who are now dealing with death, very close to them, all the people who are dealing with sickness. Uh, I've been thinking about it. I'm just like, well, how do we make this fruitful? And what I realized is that, you know, and this is, sounds funny in my head, but it's going to come out, right? Death is a good wake-up call for those of us who are living. Because the question becomes, you know, what are we doing with this life? And so part of my thoughts has been, you know, a lot of times we wait to the end of life to think about questions like legacy or, or fruit or what we're leaving behind. But I don't think we have that privilege because we never know when death is nearest to us. We never know if today is our last day or if this breath we take now is our last breath. So we don't get the privilege to say, in 20 years when I'm ready to go, in 30 years when I'm ready to go, then I'll think about legacy. And I've been thinking about this quote by um, 19th century preacher, theologian, writer Charles Spurgeon. He says this, a good character is the best tombstone. Those who loved you and were helped by you will remember you when forget-me-nots have withered. Carve your name on hearts, not on marble. I love that. Carve your names on heart and not marble. So the question becomes, are we good characters? And you can split that two ways, right? The first one is, do we actually have good character? Are we actually good people? Do we actually reflect Jesus to our world? And the best part about that is that we can't answer that honestly. The only people who can answer that are Jesus and your world. Not the world. Christians love to talk about the world, but I want to talk about your world, the people you know, the people who know you, the people you interact with, the people you live with, the people who are in your neighborhood, the people at your workplace. Do they know that you have good character? Would they say you reflect Jesus? 
Because the thing is that not only do we have to have good character and our world knows we have good character, I think one of the shifts that we have to make is we're doing a really good job in society. Here you go as a Christian talking about the world, right? We're doing a good job in the world saying that your story matters. The difference with us as Christians is not just our story matters, but that we also have to be characters in Jesus' story. And that's a shift from the world. The world says, tell your story, put yourself out there. We should be asking, God, here's my story. I'm going to put it out there. But how does it tie into your work in the world? Because it's not just about me and my story. It's about the meta narrative the theologians tell us, the big story. It's about Jesus and where we fit in. So are we good characters? Are we good characters in Jesus' story? And how are we living now to be remembered then? Would my world, would your world, again, the people we live with, live near, work with, work near, the people we interact with on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, would they say that we are good characters? How are we living now to be remembered then? How are you carving your name on their hearts? Are we good witnesses? And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Because as we get to this next passage in Luke, Jesus is going to present the case of arguably his best witness, or at least in his story, the best witness so far, John the Baptist. And we're going to try to pull lessons from John's life that show that he was a good witness. But the entire morning, the framework for us has to be, are we carving the names or our name on the hearts of the people around us? And then honestly, are we being good witnesses of Jesus our Christ? If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. I'll be reading, it's fairly lengthy, um, verses 18 to 35. We'll have it up front so you can follow there as well, starting at verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy or skin diseases are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is the one to whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you, says Malachi. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, John. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, 
To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. What does it mean to be a witness of Jesus our Christ? Let's pray to God. Father God, we thank you so much that you who left heaven to come to earth have lived and loved in a way not just to show us how to live in love, but in a way that invites us into your story. Now, Lord, those of us who have seen, may we go and tell. Those of us who have known you, may we go and tell. Those of us who have experienced your love, your grace, your compassion, your mercy. Those of us who are walking testimonies of your miracles and you moving with compassion to act on our behalf. Of you doing things we could not even dream of or imagine. Lord, may our story be found in your story. May our story point others to you. May we not just witness to the world, but may we be witness of you to our world. In your holy and precious name, amen. I find it very interesting that in Luke, Jesus starts off with the Sermon on the Plain, which we did a couple weeks ago. And in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus is intentional about this is what you are to live like. If you belong to me, if you belong to the kingdom, this is all you have to live. This is how you ought to pray. This is what you ought to do with enemies. This is how you are to live. And then I don't know if Luke does this or if him and Jesus had a, had a meeting, right? And then in the meeting, they say, this is how we're going to branch out the book. But I find it very interesting that right after Jesus tells you how we are to live, the very next chapter, starting in chapter 7, Jesus teaches about death. The whole Sermon on the Plain is about how to live. And as soon as you think you got that figured out, he's like, well, now let's talk about death. And what do we learn about death in Luke 7? Well, first of all, we learn that by faith, Jesus can heal a centurion servant from even afar. We hear that Jesus doesn't have to be physically present among us for a miracle to come down. And I think that should be almost comforting to us. Because in our darkest nights, we may not feel that Jesus is near. And I think what this teaches us is that's okay because God is still working. You don't have to feel it for God to be working. It's nice. I'd rather we feel it when God's working, but God is not dependent on you feeling his presence to be present. And that's hard for us because in those dark nights, we want the presence, we want the comfort, but we don't need a God who's physically walking all the way to us to work and to move. But even more, the, the second story in, in, in Luke 7 about death is we see that God is moved with compassion. In the story of the widow's son, we, we kind of speculate a little bit and say, maybe this is the first time in Scripture that we see Jesus not just healing automatically or not just healing and power coming out of him, but he sees a mother suffering and he's moved with compassion. And perhaps he saw in that widow of nine, perhaps he saw his own mother Mary, who a couple years later would be what? A widow's mother leading the funeral beer, right? Leading the people in the procession with her son dead. But we see that God is moved with compassion to act on our behalf. That too should give us comfort even in the darkness of life. That no matter what we go through, what we feel, what we're struggling with, God is moved with compassion on our behalf. We don't have a God who's just automatically up there and doing everything on, on, on automatic and robotic. 
We have a God who's moved when you're hurt. We have a God who's moved when you struggle. We have a God who's moved when you're fighting the darkness and he moves to act on your behalf. So after he teaches this about death, we get this introduction of John the Baptist. Now the other gospels will tell us that John more than likely as this is currently happening in Luke 7 is in jail. Undoubtedly awaiting his death. His mortality is on his mind. And what starts to happen at the end of life is we start thinking about what we did and what we didn't do, the regrets we have, the regrets we don't have. But I think John is sitting in that jail cell, and his disciples come to him. And they're like, hey, this Jesus guy is doing all these amazing things. The blind are being able to see. The dead are being raised. The lame can speak. The, 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 the paralyzed can walk. Jesus is doing all these things. And so John listens to what his disciples have to say. And what I love is that the disciples, even before they go to John, they heard, they saw, they experienced God. And how were they witnesses? They thought it was important to not hold on to that experience for themselves, but to share it with others. A lot of us who grew up in the church, witnessing was something we did. But I think the story of the Gospels is witnesses are people we are. It is not just simply you go to do. And so the hard part about that means that either I'm living as a faithful witness to Jesus Christ or I'm not. There's no in-between. You don't get to say like, well, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm not going to be a good witness, but Thursday I'm going to go out witnessing. It doesn't work that way. You're either a faithful witness now or you're not. And I love that these disciples of John, they're not yet following Jesus. The disciples of John, but they see how God is working. They see how God is moving. And instead of just taking it and guarding it in their hearts, they go and say, what is happening here? And so they take that to John. They go and tell him everything they're hearing. And when John hears that, I love that he doesn't have an answer. Except to what? Well, go to Jesus and discover it yourself. Now, a lot of theologians are not okay with that, right? So they'll speculate that, oh, I think John missed the point about Jesus being the Messiah. We don't know. That's speculation. They'll say something like, they'll try to clean up a little bit and be like, well, I think what happens here is that not only did John miss the point, but like John is so worried about death, he can't see how God is moving. I struggle with that because John and Jesus were cousins. Because his entire life, he was preparing the way of the Lord. So if, if John isn't just missing the point here, what is he doing? I think John understood something about Jesus. When it comes to people learning about Jesus, it's not about us having the answers. It's about us bringing them to the answer. It's not about us having the perfect equation. It's about us telling what we've heard, telling what we've seen, telling what we've experienced. It's about us inviting people into the Jesus story, not simply giving people answers to the Jesus question. Because here's the thing, you probably don't have the right answer they're looking for. And if you center yourself to be, I'm the one who's supposed to give them the answer, they just might miss it. And that's a lot of pressure. So take that pressure off yourself, right? And just tell what Jesus has done for you. Just tell what Jesus has done in you. Just tell what Jesus has done through you. And if you can't do that, just bring them to Jesus any way you can.
Because that's what these disciples are, are commanded to do by John. John says, okay, if that's what he's doing, I want you to go to him and ask him this question. Are you the one we're waiting for? Or should we wait for someone else? Are you the one we're waiting for? Or should we expect someone else? And here Luke, like a good journalist or reporter, or he, he kind of circumvents that question by putting in a little extra information. And he gifts you Jesus' resume. So John poses the question to the disciples, right? He's like, go ask Jesus. Are you the one, the Messiah we've been waiting for? Or are you just another prophet we should get someone else? And Luke is like, but y'all, let me tell you what Jesus was already doing. Jesus was already curing the sick. He was curing people of evil spirits. He was giving sight to the blind. He was raising the dead to life. And he puts them in that order specifically, right? Because that's what Isaiah said the Messiah would do. So before the answer comes to the disciples, Luke wants his readers, wants us to know, they may not know this is Jesus the Messiah, but you ought to know this is Jesus the Messiah. And so he puts that in there to say, like, kind of like the background, right? So you have the scene end with John. Go and discover. Go and ask Jesus the question. And Luke is like, forget them. Jesus the Messiah? Isaiah said he got to cure the sick. He's curing the sick. He got to raise the dead. He's raising the dead. Proclaim the gospel to the poor. He's doing all that. Luke gives his resume. And then he goes to Jesus' response. And what is Jesus' response? I'll go back to the text. And Jesus, after the people come, Jesus says, I need you now to go and tell what you've experienced. Because first, Jesus greets the messengers, right? Luke gives the resume, and Jesus says, listen, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. And what does Jesus do? He gives the same resume again. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy and skin diseases are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I think what's interesting about Jesus reiterating his resume here is that he wants them to not just know the answers, but to share what they've seen. And that's the work of all of us. We are all supposed to be sharing what we've seen. We're all supposed to be sharing what Jesus has done for us, right? This isn't one of those things where you're like, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. You're a witness. This isn't like, I don't like talking to people. You're creative. You'll find a way, right? Like, this isn't something we get to opt out of. We don't get to be like, well, you know, I'm only 17. I'm in college. I'm busy. I'm 67. I'm retired. We do not get an option, because all of us are either good witnesses or bad witnesses. That's it. You're either living to tell the story of Jesus or you're not. And Jesus reiterates here. It's like, I'm glad you came to me. I'm glad you've seen these things. But now you ought to what? Go and tell. And that's the challenge for all of us. And then he says this line, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What a promise. That if we're faithful, God's going to be faithful too. That if you're faithful to just tell what you've experienced, what you've seen, what God's done for you, that God is going to bless that. We put so much emphasis on us and how to tell the story and who to tell the story to or what gift we have or what gift we don't have or who to tell and what time to do it and how to do it. Your job isn't to strategize the Holy Spirit. Your job isn't to plan how people get saved. Here's the good news. You can't even save nobody. You ain't even save yourself. 
Your job is just to tell the story. And if you don't know all about the meta-narrative, the big Jesus story, just tell your story and how God is interacting in your life. And Jesus seems to believe that you will be blessed. You will not stumble if you tell the story, what you've experienced, what you've seen. I will bless it. That should release you to go. We are all called to be witnesses. But more than that, we are all witnessing. So the question this morning for all of us is, what are we witnessing to? Who are we witnessing for? What is the world seeing of us? How are we carving our hearts or carving their hearts with love? How are we showing them who Jesus is? Because either we are or we're not. It's simple. And so after Jesus goes through this, it's also interesting because some of the theologians pick up on something. This is before Luke will boldly say they want to kill him. This is before Luke will boldly say they're gathering now to kill him. And so some speculate, and I think they might be right on this part, that Jesus knew his time had not yet come. So he speaks not just to the Pharisees and those who would turn on him, but he takes the people back to the scriptures. He takes them back to to, to what the Spirit had taught them their entire life. Instead of just saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King, Jesus seems to be like, well, what did Isaiah say I would do? And those are the things I'm doing. And so there's a lesson in here that's kind of tricky, and I hope I say it right. If I don't, the Spirit will fix it for you. I have faith. The lesson seems to be by Jesus here is that if you know what the Scriptures say, If you know who God is, you will be able to see the signs of God. That seems to be the trust exercise that Jesus is doing here. He doesn't need to say, I'm the Messiah, the one who's come. He simply needs to say, this is what I've done. And he's trusting that John's disciples, that the crowd, that John himself will be able to be like, oh, if that's the fruit of what God is doing, if that's the fruit of what Jesus is doing, Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't have to say, I'm the Messiah. He says what? Look at my fruit. And I think that's another lesson in us living as witnesses. You may not have to say, I believe in Jesus, if your life doesn't actually show it. Because if your life don't show it and you say it, it don't matter anyway. It's about the fruit. And I think Jesus is very comfortable in saying, look at my fruit and determine who I am. Here's the scary part. If our world, your world says, look at your fruit. Do they know who you are? And does who you are look like Jesus or not? That should keep you up at night. Tell you, I've been thinking about death. Welcome. And so after Jesus says this to John's disciples, he says, listen, if you just tell the story, if you just show the fruit, if you just tell what you've experienced, you will be blessed. I will be faithful. You be faithful and I'll be faithful to you. And then he turns to the crowd. So I find this interesting, too, because Jesus is doing all these things. The crowds are growing, 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 growing. John's disciples come to him. He answers their question by basically saying, look, Isaiah says this is what I'll do. I'm doing it. Now you go tell that. And then he turns to the crowd. And he says, but what did y'all come and see? And I love this about Jesus because he doesn't leave anyone out. Right? He has this personal, intimate conversation with the disciples of John. I think it's only two of them. Right? And then he turns to the whole crowd and be like, but what did y'all come and see? And N.T. Wright talks about this. This is like a weird phrase, at least for me. He says, you know, did you go to see a reed in the wilderness? And I'm just like, I don't know what that means, right? And, uh, but, but in our setting, that would be like someone saying, did you go to see the bald eagle flying high, right? Like that would mean something to us as Americans, right? But the reed in the wilderness doesn't hit the same. Well, in Herod's time, one of the ways that you would mass produce the message of the, the empire was to have coins, 
right? Now we just have social media and Facebook and, and news channels, right? But the coins, because it was a, one, they didn't have social media, I know, but it was also a very um, illiterate culture. So you needed to be able to put your message distilled that anyone can see and know. And the reed represented not just the reeds of Galilee, but the royalty of Herod, right? Like, this is my power over you. Take my coin. See my face on the coin. So Jesus starts off for, the, for maybe the scholars first and says, what did you go to see? Herod in the wilderness? What did you go to see? A Messiah who was king? Is that what you wanted to see? Again, leaving no one untouched. He says, or did you just want to see someone who's rich? And this one's convicting. Because he says, like, did you go to see people with fancy clothes? Because here's the thing. The rich belong in palaces, not in the wilderness. And the reason that's convicting to me is because it's a reminder that if my world is struggling, that's where I belong. That if my people are hurting, that's where I belong. We live in a society, in a culture, in a place, in a country where comfort is king. And our God seems to think that, like, if we're just living in our comfort, if we're just living where it feels good, if we're just living what's more convenient, if we're just making the best choices for us, if we're not in the wilderness, are we truly living for Jesus? And that's hard for all of us. That should be convicting for all of us because Jesus seems to be not interested in your comfort. But are you willing to go where the hurting are? And so he says, you might see your kings in palaces. You might see your rich living in your comfort, but my people belong in the wilderness. And that's a challenge because it's hard to witness in my comfort. It's hard to witness to someone who's struggling with my legs propped up. It's a little bit easier if instead of sitting on my phone complaining about the darkness, I'm actually going down there and walking with you. Jesus seems to think that his people belong not in the comforts of the world, but in the wilderness where the broken are, where the hard life, hardships of life are unbearable. That's where we ought to be. And so you may have wanted a messianic king who looked like Herod and would vanquish everything Rome. You may have wanted someone who was more prosperity and just rich and now you'll be blessed. We don't even teach that anymore, do we, right? We don't do that. We move past that, right? You believe in God and you'll be blessed. We don't teach that no more. But Jesus says, like, if that's what you think, that's not it either. Because what you'll get is John. And boy, I love John. Not only does this man eat crickets, he dressed funny. Like, I also admit, ever since I was a kid, I was thought about this. I was like, I bet John is those people. This is me speculating. I bet John is those people who, because they're in the water all the time, they don't believe in showering. You know, like, he just gives me that vibe. Like, I can't imagine John baptized a thousand people and says, you know what I need now? Soap. Right? I just feel like someone who eats crickets and wears, you know, whatever he finds on animals, I just don't feel like soap is on his priority, right? And I love that because I think there's a picture that Jesus is saying is that, like, you wanted fancy clothes, my guy doesn't even shower. Right? You wanted someone who's rich, my guy will literally eat the bugs that he sees walking down the street. Like, you wanted someone who was more clean cut. And here's the great irony, and Jesus gets to this at the end. On the outside, John didn't look like this ascetic priest and prophet. But on the inside, John was the one who didn't drink. John was the one who was holy, like, like the Nazarite vow, didn't even cut his hair probably, right? John was the one who followed everything, and he still wasn't good enough. 
And so the challenge to us is, who do we put on those pedestals that we listen to? Because quite often, if they don't look like Jesus or point to Jesus, we ought to be reassessing. Because Jesus says, that colorful John is my messenger. And if you remember in Malachi 3, when we were there a couple months ago, we said Malachi 3 is tricky because part of it is talking about Jesus coming the first time. And part of it is Jesus coming the second time. And so in Malachi 3, he's like, yeah, he's going to come the first time and heal the sick and raise the dead and call people to the kingdom. But I don't think that's just what Jesus is talking about here by calling John my messenger. He's also reminding them, because these are temple people, the Holy Spirit's yet to come down. So for them, yes, the Messiah comes, and then the one who comes after the Messiah is the one who has the power of Yahweh God himself, who will judge the quick and the dead, who will judge the living and the dead, who will judge everyone in eternity. So Jesus is saying, John, that guy who might not shower is the one who's preparing the way for me to come this time and the next time. And and then he says this thing that's fascinating. He says, but John is probably the greatest, or John is the greatest of anyone who's been born of a woman. And it says to us, that Jesus didn't just appreciate John's ministry, that Jesus thought it was essential. And Jesus thought that of all the prophets, right? And if you talk to Jewish scholars, even Muslim scholars, even Christian scholars, they will debate who's the greatest prophet. But I think this passage and Luke's point here is that Jesus is saying, actually, you can count up all your people, but you know who number one is? It's John. And that's why I think we ought to learn from John what it means to be a witness. Because Jesus seems to think that there's no one who's come so far who's greater than John. But then he gives this little hope to us where he says, but listen, but when the work is done, right? And I die on the cross for your sins. And I'm raised from the dead on the third day, right? And the death has been defeated forever. Every single one of you who believe and enter the kingdom, you'll even be greater than John. And isn't that what the writer of Hebrews picks up in Hebrews 11? They list all these great people and they're like, but listen, they all fall short because they didn't have Jesus yet. And you do. And so Jesus makes the statement where John's the greatest witness. But all of you who believe in me now will be greater in my kingdom. And what's interesting here, it says like the, the faithful, and Luke makes a note of those who've been baptized are the ones who believe Jesus right now. And we had baptism a couple weeks ago. And I was thinking about this, and I was like, I need to talk about baptism more. Because I think one of the ways we show we belong to Jesus in the community is actually to be baptized. And I don't think it's a coincidence here that Luke throws that in, that the people who were baptized are the ones who believe. Because Luke is saying that those who have pledged their life to Jesus and rededicated their life to Jesus, those are the ones who are going to be more easily seeing Jesus. And I'm not saying if you're not baptized, right, you don't see Jesus. I'm just saying if you're not baptized, you're not being as faithful to Jesus as you ought to be. Now, if you come to baptism class, I'll sell a little bit softer, right? But in Scripture, Jesus seems to be very serious about baptism. Like, you believe and you are baptized. The Great Commission, go and and, and baptize. Like, it seems to be something that's very, very important. And here Luke throws it in as like this whole crowd of people were there. But it's those who were baptized who saw Jesus and believed this. And then I love this about Jesus because not only did the faithful believe those who were been baptized and obedient to Jesus, but the ones without faith are the ones who don't believe. And then he tells this story that's kind of weird, right? We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not cry. 
Well, apparently in first century Galilee, the kids in the marketplace would play this game, right? Where, you know, they would either pretend it was a funeral or they would pretend it was a wedding. And everyone had a part to play in it, right? And so the question becomes, like, why is Jesus telling this story, right? And the point he's making is fleshed out in 33 to 35. But the foundational point you ought to see here is that it doesn't matter what I do. If you don't want to believe, you will not believe. Just like it doesn't matter what those kids did, if they played wedding or they played funeral, if you don't want to play, you're not going to play. And then he uses that foundation and goes, listen, John, who might have smelled a little different and ate a little different, was the one who didn't eat, was the one who drank no wine. And you looked at him and said, what? He's a demon. And then me, (laughs) the one who came eating and drinking, you say what? He's a glutton and a drunkard. And I think some of us have kind of babyfied that about Jesus, right? To call yourself a drunkard wasn't just like, I have beer with my friends, right? I have friends who are pastors that I feel like they can't wait to go to beer with people. I'm like, listen, if you want to drink, that's great. But I have friends who literally be like, when I have a beer, I can talk about Jesus. I was like, that seems a little weird to me, you know? And like, I think we like, we babyfied the fact that Jesus saying they're calling me a drunkard. In that culture... (laughs) To be called a drunkard was worthy of death. This is a death sentence. This isn't Jesus saying, like, I like to go to wings and throw a few back with my boys. Right? Like, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Like, Jesus is actually saying, listen, John was as clean cut as possible. And y'all wanted to kill him and call him a a demon. And me, I was not. I did throw a few back with my boys. And you wanted to kill me too. Right? Like Pastor Carmen, I ain't say it, Jesus said it. Right? Here is a glutton and a drunkard. I ain't say it. Jesus said it. Right? The point he's making here is it doesn't matter what you do or don't do. If people don't want to believe, they will not. And for me, that gives me a little bit of peace. Because it reminds me that it's the spirit that convicts. It's the Father that saves, and it's Jesus that died. My job isn't to save anyone. I can't even save myself. So stop putting pressure on yourself to be the perfect witness, to be the perfect evangelist, be the perfect Jesus storyteller, to be the perfect Christian. People will only believe when the Spirit convicts. People will only believe when they choose to follow Jesus. People, like, you're not going to tell a story and be like, wow. I don't even need the Holy Spirit, Hank. You said that so perfectly. I now believe in Jesus. That will never happen. Ever. When Jesus calls us to be witnesses, he's calling us to be faithful. When Jesus calls us to be witnesses, he's calling us to just tell what we've experienced, what we've seen, how we know God has moved and how God has worked. That's all he's asking you to do. Share your story with the world. Tell them what I've done for you. And so I think that the lessons that we get from John, or John the Baptist, and specifically this passage, number one, we must all live as witnesses and not just go out to witness. All of you are witnesses. All of us are witnesses. What are we witnessing to? And so we must all live as witnesses, not just be like, well, this is what I do on Friday nights. That's what I do on Wednesday nights. Every single day, morning, night, evening, all of it is your chance to witness. And what are you witnessing to? Are you going and telling what you have seen and heard? Are you living to show God's love that you know? 
because I am 40 years old and I've yet to see someone who I've made. Maybe I'm just not as brilliant as I think I am, right? I've yet to make a scientific argument, a philosophical argument, a theological argument where people will be like, wow, you explained that so perfectly. I now believe in Jesus. I don't even need the Bible. I got this chemistry book. Right? Like, it's never happened to me. Maybe it happened to you. It's never happened to me that, like, I explained the scripture so perfectly that people are like, yes, I now believe. But I tell you what, those people who I've seen come to follow Jesus, they hear a little bit of my story. Or they see how God has worked and how God has moved, and they're intrigued by that. Our world doesn't need us to be smarter than them. Our world doesn't need us to be more clever and to have the perfect pitch argument than them. Our world just needs the Jesus story. And I keep saying this, right? Only you can go to your people. Only you can go to your people. The classic example I like to tell is like when I used to take kids on mission trips. And I always felt bad for the parents because we'd come back. And the kids would be like, Mom and Dad, guess what I learned? Jesus loves me. And the parents have this big existential crisis. It's just like, you little brat, for 16 years, for 16 years I've been trying to tell you this. And you need to leave the country to know. But I love you, son. That's great. I'm so happy for you, right? But sometimes only you can tell the people that Jesus loves them. Because only you have that relationship with them. Only you have that connection. If I came into your people and be like, Jesus loves you, they might think that's a little weird. But if you do it, they might be willing to listen. Only you can go to your people, so we must all live as witnesses. And what else do we do in this witnessing? We must invite others to discover Jesus. I think the younger generation is, is forcing us to do this. But I think if you go to any generation, you'll realize this, that we've moved away from the enlightenment and having all the lines in the sand and having all the answers. We ought to be more willing to just invite people to discover Jesus. Lose the pressure of you having all the answers. You might have some answers. Scripture says, you know, you'll have an answer ready. I'm not saying you don't have to study Scripture, walk with God, and know about God. I'm just saying it's not dependent on you. There's a difference between being ready and prepared for the moment to share and never sharing at all. There's a difference between saying, well, God will do it and actually knowing what God has done. So this doesn't alleviate you from doing the work, but it does say that you are not the answer person. John was a witness, but he gave them the question. Go find out who Jesus is. I can tell you who he is to me. I can tell you what he's done in my life. I can tell you what he's done in my community, but go find out who Jesus is. And we don't have to do that in fear because our God is bigger than we could ever dream or imagine Right? One of the things I love about sermons is you'll be up here for 40 minutes and people remember the one offhand comment and be like, that's the one that got me. It's just like, well, God bless you, I guess. You know? But that's how these conversations sometimes go. Right? You're so excited to tell people everything that's going on in your life and they'll be like, well, when you quit that job at 17, that's when I knew God's real. It's like, oh, okay, I guess. Cool. You know? Just go and tell this story. Don't make yourself the key answer person. And I think the one of the ways we do that, right, so we live as witnesses, we invite others to discover Jesus, one of the ways we do both of those things is trust that who Jesus has revealed himself to be to you is enough. Right? You don't need to know everything about Jesus. Just know who Jesus is to you. 
And then trust in these conversations, in these relationships, as you walk and journey with people, trust that who Jesus has said he is to you is enough. And I love the example of David, right? In Psalm 23, David was a shepherd. David was a king. David was a warrior. David didn't sit there and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to think about how I'm going to write a song that's going to relate to generations of God's followers. That's not what he did. He says, you know what, man? I thought I was a shepherd and looked out for my sheep, but when I thought about it, oh my goodness, God's my shepherd. Man, I thought I was a king, but when I looked at it, God is the king of kings. Man, I thought I was a warrior, but when I thought about it, God's love is like a warrior who will chase me down until I'm captured. Who God has revealed himself to you is enough. Right? If David had sat down and said, let me pen the perfect psalm, he would have failed miserably. All he did was tell who God is to him, and we've been blessed by Psalm 23 for generations upon generations upon generations. Who God has said himself to be to you, that's enough. And that's all you're responsible to share. And so this last one is all of us then must continue to be faithful and not faithless. What I mean by that is that this has to be an everyday thing. Every day when you wake up, you ought to be asking yourself, how am I being a witness to Jesus today? Every move, every conversation, every interaction, we ought to be thinking, how am I shining my light here? How am I being faithful here? And the marks of faithfulness in this passage has been people who see what God's done and they tell it. People who don't have all the answers but go to Jesus for the answer. People who trust and listen to what God says. And people who are obedient to do the commandments of God. And if you look at the Great Commission, that's what Jesus says, right? Like, do what? Everything I have shown you. That's our responsibility. What you know about Jesus, you're responsible for sharing with the world. What God's done for you, you're responsible for sharing for the world. And what I love about this is it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. It doesn't matter if you're a great public speaker or, or, or a mediocre public speaker. It doesn't matter what gifts you have. God seems to think that the people he's placed in your life are best served by you. God seems to believe that the work that he's done in your life is best told by you. So that's the work. That's the work. May we not just go to witness. May we truly live as witnesses. May we not have all the answers, but be willing to invite others to discover Jesus. May we trust that who God has shown himself to be to us is enough for our world. And may we continue to be faithful and not faithless. Amen? I'd like to invite up the worship team. Uh, we'll be closing singing What a Beautiful Name. Um, as we sing this song, I'd like to invite any of the pastors in the room. We'd love to pray for you, either in response to something in the sermon or the service or with anything else that you've got going on. As we sing this song, may we be reminded that Jesus has called all of us to go and make disciples. That all of us are given this task of being witnesses. As we sing this song about the beautiful name of Jesus, may we also then pledge our lives to be people who proclaim that name by love, indeed, and in truth. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
we can stand against. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. Um, in one of the greatest theological works of the 20th century, um, Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, there's a scene where Frodo and Gandalf, Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And I love that. Because for you as you are regular theologians, you turn to Acts 1-8, where Jesus says what? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. My sisters and brothers, we only have time that we have. We only have the breaths that we have. We'll only know the days that we have. May we be witnesses locally and even globally. May we be witnesses in our houses, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. May we be witnesses not just as a church, but as the church. May we be witnesses who are faithful to God as God has been faithful to us. Amen. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much that every breath is a chance to honor you. That every day is a day not just to feel and know your mercies are new, but to share those mercies and love with our world. That every word that we're privileged to speak, every thought that we're privileged to think, every act we're privileged to do, Lord, it can be done for your glory. Lord, may we be faithful like you've been faithful to us. May we release ourselves of the pressure of going to witness and start working and doing those things that make us faithful witnesses now. Lord, we want to carve your name on the hearts of the people. Lord, we want to tell your story through what you've done in our lives. So God, help us to not put pressure on ourselves for having the perfect argument or having the perfect answer, but help us to just be bold enough to lead people to you, our perfect God. Help us to be bold enough to say, this is what God has done in me. This is who I believe God is. And help us to know that who you've revealed yourself to be to us is enough. Lord, we are enough. And even if we don't believe it, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives within us, that empowers us, that equips us, that sends us out. We thank you for the gift of a faithful community around us that prays for us, that encourages us, and also sends us out. Lord, we are all called to be your witnesses. May we be faithful like you are faithful. May we be loving as you are loving. May we shine as you shine. May we go into the darkness, into the wilderness, into the brokenness simply proclaiming peace, peace, peace. God is with you. God loves you. God will carry you through. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.